if you don't know what Noel means, it, it's not a holy word. It just means Christmas carol. And so the first Christmas carol, the song states, was, was sung by angels to certain poor shepherds. And then before that, we sang Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Could be Excelsis, depends on your Latin pronunciation, but that is a Latin phrase. Deo means to God. So Gloria means glory. So that leaves us to explain in excelsis, it means in the highest. So Gloria in excelsis Deo means glory to God in the highest. And that also is taken from the account in uh, Luke of the shep- of uh, the angels singing to the shepherds. Um, it doesn't say that they were singing, and the song picks up on that when it says uh, the first Noel, the angels did say was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay. And so I uh, didn't want you to go through life singing those songs and not knowing what they meant. Noel means little Christmas song, and in excelsis Deo means glory. Gloria in excelsis Deo means glory to God in the highest. Now let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. I think that this uh, passage of Scripture that I'm going to preach from is very lovely because it uh, gives us a description of the character of Jesus Christ. You know, when you, are, when you are called to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not being called to merely give your assent to Christian doctrine. You are not being asked to just say, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for sinners and arose again. So it's not just believing the right things. In following Jesus Christ, you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ whereby he becomes the main influence in your life. So you receive him as Savior and Lord now, there's nobody in my life that I call Lord. Uh, in, in days gone by, there would have been relationships between servants and masters where commonly a servant would have referred to his master or his superior as Lord. <clears throat> but there's no one in my life other than Jesus that I call Lord and probably no one in your life that you refer to as Lord. So it's hard to find an exact parallel in American English for the word Lord, but boss is pretty close. But it's not just boss in a distant sense, in the same way that you work for a boss at work, but you may never go to his house for a meal, or you may not know anything about him, and he has very little influence over you other than the time that you are actually working for him. When you receive Jesus as Lord, it includes He is the boss, but he is also a person who invites you to have fellowship with him. And, uh, in fact, he even invites us to enjoy a meal with him. And we have that meal once a week here, at at once per month here at Bullet Lick. And we call it the Lord's Supper. But it is an indication that we are having fellowship with him. We are being influenced by him. And so, yeah, boss is about as close as we can get in English 
in American English to receiving Jesus as Lord. But just know that it carries with it far more than you're submitting to this person for eight hours a day and 40 hours a week. He becomes the main influence in your life. And that influence takes place as you learn more about him. You're not going to get anywhere just sitting around meditating on the name J-E-S-U-S. I think uh, maybe that some of the songs that we have loved have sort of misled us in that direction. Uh, When I was a teenager, I sang in a, a quartet, and one of the songs that we sang was the Gaither's very lovely song, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, uh, there's just something about that name. And I, I hope that the Gaithers knew better than I did as a singer. But as a singer and as a young Christian, I just thought, well, there's just something sort of magical and soothing about the name that is spelled J-E-S-U-S. But honestly, you're not going to get anywhere in the Christian life by just sitting around saying the word Jesus over and over again like it's some kind of mantra. You have got to learn who is Jesus. And as you learn who Jesus is, and the way that you learn that is primarily through the Scriptures. There are other ways. You learn about Jesus as you see how he works out events in your life, and you continue to trust in him. Uh, But uh, primarily through his word, reading the word yourself, uh, hearing the word expounded by someone like myself who hopefully is prepared and has thought about it and thought about how best to introduce you to who Jesus is and the the various qualities of his character. Through uh, having fellowship with others and understanding what they know about Jesus and talking with other Christians and in praying with other Christians Often there are aspects of the Lord's character that are revealed to us. And as those aspects of the Lord's character are revealed to us, if you are a Christian, then you are pre-programmed to admire those things. And as you admire those things, then your love for Christ grows. And this is really the essential matter, that we should love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, And then as we love him, then we become more like him. And as we will see in the text that I'll preach from today and virtually any text that you read about Jesus, he was a man who cares about others. And so as we we think about Jesus, we learn more about him, we admire and appreciate the things that we learn about him, that causes our love to grow. And as we love him more and fall more under his influence, then we begin to adopt more and more of his values and practices. And so this is the process. Knowing knowing about Jesus is really at the foundation of all of our progress in the Christian life. You cannot this morning say, well, next year I'm just going to love Jesus more and make up your mind that you're going to do it. Love for Christ is a, is a byproduct of knowing more about Christ. And so let's take advantage of this text of Scripture and other texts of Scripture that reveal to us who Jesus is and what Jesus does. 
In my common mispronunciation of the word was, I usually say was, and so the two points of this sermon are who Jesus was and what Jesus does, and it rhymes in my mind. Those are the two points, who Jesus was and what Jesus does. And uh, so in thinking about this sermon and thinking about what I'm calling everyone in this room to do, namely... Give yourself unreservedly to Jesus Christ as your boss, as your husband. Yes, even even we men, the manliest among us is feminine in contrast to the great masculine God. And we are, the church is referred to in feminine terms because that which is feminine receives and that's the position that we are. As a, as a church, we are receiving. We're not making this up as we go along. We are receiving truth from our, our great God, our great Savior, our great husband. We as a church relate to Jesus in the way that a submissive wife re, uh, relates to a, a loving husband. Jesus relates to us in the way that a loving husband relates to a submissive wife. And uh, so I'm, I'm calling each of you, and I'm calling us as a church, to marry Jesus. Now, there is a, a very affecting story of a marriage that takes place. We read it in the book of Genesis. When Abraham, who was living in the area that we know of now as Israel, it wasn't called that in those days, but he was living on that plot of land that is on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea, he wanted to get a wife for his son Isaac, but he didn't want to take a wife from among the peoples who lived there in Canaan. They were all idol worshipers, and he wanted his son Isaac to worship someone who knew the true and the living God, a very great aspiration for all of us who who have single children in our home. We want them to marry godly people. And so Abraham sent his servant to go back to the land where Abraham had immigrated from. <clears throat> and he says, I want you to go back and among, among my relatives there, I want you to secure a, a, a wife for my son Isaac. It's a very lovely story. I'm not going to take the time to tell the whole story. But the servant is successful and he finds there a, a young, beautiful young lady named Rebecca. And uh, he... he tells the family of Rebecca a little bit about Isaac, not much. I hope it's more than we have, but it's not much that we have recorded in the Bible. And then he says, will you, will you come and will you come and marry Isaac? And she says, yes, I will. The family agrees to it. And just give us a couple of weeks with her. And the servant says, no, I would really like to get back with, uh, with the success of my journey. It's very important. I want to leave right away. And so they say, well, let's, let's call Rebecca and see what she says. And so they call Rebecca, and I'm sure they explained he wants to, he wants to leave in the morning. And then they ask her this question, will you go with this man? And she says, yes. And so just based on the little information that she had about Isaac and she leaves the 
the home that she has always known and travels hundreds of miles and uh, marries Isaac. But her family said, will you go with this man? And that's the question that I ask you this morning. Will you go with this man? This man that is described for us here in this text. So you can't see a picture of him. We don't have any pictures of him. And so if your heart is going to be filled with willingness, and if your heart is going to be filled with admiration and love for Jesus Christ, it's going to be because you pay attention to and hear descriptions like we have here about who Jesus was and what Jesus does. So let's, let's look at this passage of Scripture here in Matthew chapter 12. Now the very, uh, the, the end of my text last week says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Now, Jesus is a man who had done very, very kind, considerate acts of compassion. The thing that had made the Pharisees so angry with him is that he had healed a man on a day that they thought healings ought not to have taken place. They thought that... uh, that it was inappropriate to heal someone on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them a, a, a couple of answers that we, we, went, we went over last week. Eight, in fact. But uh, Jesus says, if one of you guys has a sheep that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, you'll pull it out. You love sheep more than you love people. And he healed the man who had the withered hand. And because of that... These religious leaders were so angry that they determined that they were going to try to kill Jesus. And we just kind of stare at that and say, how could that be? How could they have been so mean-spirited towards someone who was so obviously a nice man, a helpful man? And, uh, well, it, it is a testimony to the hardness of hearts that after seeing what Jesus did and hearing what Jesus said for three and a half years, that the religious leaders were able successfully to execute him. And uh, so it, it is a testimony to the hardness of heart. And um, the fact of the matter is that many of us have experienced something like that. Uh, I can remember when I was uh, lost and did not want to be a follower of Jesus. I didn't want him telling me what to do. I would have such thoughts that I now see to be characterized by hatred. I blindly never saw it as hatred in those days. But I would ask myself, I would ask such questions as, why does there even have to be a God? Why does he have to forbid all of the things that I want to do? Why does there have to be a heaven and a hell? Why must he be so just? Why does he have to be so holy as to disapprove of fun things that I would like to do and that I know I would enjoy doing? Why does he, why does he require that I should give myself unreservedly into his hands when I want to run my life and I don't want him running my life? I don't trust him. There's no telling what kind of a crazy, mean-spirited thing he's going to impose on me. And uh, those were thoughts that I had when I was just such a, a young man. And maybe you can remember having thoughts like that too. It is in the same class as saying, I don't want this man to exist. 
And that's how the religious leaders felt. This man is going to cause such trouble. He's going to so rearrange things in our lives and in the status quo, which is pretty good for us, that we don't want him to live anymore. And uh, under the guise of doing what they thought was a holy thing, they began looking for opportunities to put Jesus to death. And uh, so when Jesus learned about it, then he left that area and he went somewhere else. Not because he was a chicken, not because he was afraid to, to, follow per, to endure persecution, but the time was not yet right. He still had some things that he needed to do and some things that he needed to teach and some things that he needed to undergo before he would be crucified. And so Jesus leaves. He withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. So already I hope that you are seeing someone who uh, is attractive to you. By the grace of God, may, it be, may he be attractive to you, and not someone that you, you side with the Pharisees and say, I, I, want him, I don't want his influence in my life. I don't want him influencing my community. May you be like these ones who followed after him and uh, who, who were healed by him. He healed them all. That's one of the most categorical statements about Jesus' healing ministry that we have in the Scriptures. And it may puzzle you what he told them in verse 16. He ordered them not to make him known. He ordered them not to make him known. So one reason is because uh, it was going to, if, if they had continued to make him known, then it was going to... Uh, continue to raise animosity and hatred among the religious leaders so that the hour of his death, uh, humanly speaking, would be hastened. And uh, I think Jesus had a real sense of what he was supposed to be doing and when he was supposed to be doing it. Several times in his life, we find him saying to someone, my time has not yet come. Well, I say several times. I can only think of once. He says, to his, he, can, he says to his mother, my time has not yet come. But then the writer says about Jesus several times, he passed through the midst of them because his time was not yet come. So several times we have that statement made, made concerning Jesus. He had a, I think he had a sense of when things needed to happen. And so this was not the time for the persecution to be brought to a head, which would eventuate in his being crucified. And so he tells people, don't, you know, keep this under your hat. Don't spread this abroad and uh, don't make him known. But another reason that he told people not to make him known was because it, it fulfilled something that was predicted about his character. Now, I don't think that Jesus looked at Old Testament scriptures all the time and said, Oh, I've got to make sure that gets fulfilled. That would seem a little disingenuous if he were doing that. And there are a couple of times in the Scripture when the disciples do something to Jesus, and it's specifically mentioned they never knew that they were fulfilling Scripture when they did this. They only realized after he was raised from the dead that these things were written about Jesus and they had done them to him. So there was not some kind of conspiracy of the disciples and Jesus 
searching the Old Testament and saying, now here are things that are said about the Messiah, so let's make sure that we do all those things so that we present a good case for Jesus being the Messiah. Just unconsciously, because of who he was, he fulfilled many of the predictions that were made about him. And uh, perhaps this is one of them. He told the people, don't say anything to me. Don't say anything about me. And in the scripture reading that Dallas read at the beginning of the service, when he cast demons out of people, he tells the demons not to say who he was. And so there is this, this idea of let's, let's keep this under wraps for a while. And this verse of scripture tells us why Jesus wanted to keep it under wraps. Let's see what it says. And this is a quotation from the book of Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So remember, this is a verse of Scripture that says this is why he told the people not to say anything. Well, after reading this, have you been able to figure out why? The reason that is given here is because he does not want to advance his kingdom through public conflict. He's not a rabble-rouser. He's not out there protesting in the streets and saying, we need to get rid of all these religious leaders that you've got. We've got to throw off the yoke of Roman bondage. No, that was not the method of his advancing his kingdom. And it's specifically mentioned here, he told them not to tell anyone because it had been prophesied concerning him, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice in the streets. So he's not... He's not advancing his kingdom through, through rallying an army, through getting people to march in protest on the streets. Now, I think that as citizens of this country or whatever country a person is a part of, I think that there are times for uh, participating in, uh, in the armed forces. I believe that the, the Scripture in saying that uh, the governing official does not bear the sword in vain means that it is with God's approval that governments have been entrusted with the means of enforcing laws, <coughs> and the means in that day was a sword, and the means in this day would be other armaments. So I, I think that Christians can, uh, with good conscience, uh, serve in the armed forces and can with honor serve in the armed forces. I think that Christians can, with honor, serve in uh, the arms of local government, like, like police and serving on uh, as judges and so on, that help to enforce the local laws. But that's not the way that the kingdom of God is to be advanced. I think that uh, the, the men who were behind the Crusades in the 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries may have been, uh, had good intentions. They were going to try to wrest the control, W-R-E-S-T, wrest the control 
of the Holy Lands out of uh, the, the hands of the Muslims, and they successfully did so. But I, I, I disagree with the way that it was done. I, I also disagree with the, with the motivation. Uh, but uh, anyway, that serves as an outstanding example of doing things the opposite way of the way that Jesus did them. Jesus did not raise an army. Jesus did not let his voice be heard in the streets. And so the kingdom of God is not to be advanced through means of force. Now, we can, with some thankful pride, if, if that's not an oxymoron, we can, with some thankful pride, recognize that historically Baptists led the way in the United States of America for liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience is the idea that the government ought not to force anyone to be any religion. And it may come as a surprise to you that the state of Rhode Island was the first state in the history of the world to allow liberty of conscience. It hadn't been allowed in in any of the European states and Nowhere is there record of liberty of conscience being permitted by a government. And now there are many countries around the world that, that uh, permit liberty of conscience, but they are following the example of the United States, and the United States was taught that lesson by Baptists. It was Baptists who, who said, we are not going to have a state religion here. Because in the early days of Virginia, there was a state religion, the uh, What we call the Episcopalians or the the Anglican Church was the state religion. And and it may surprise you to know that in the early days of this country during the 13 colonies, Baptists were sometimes imprisoned and flogged and persecuted because they would not submit to the state church. Well, why, why were Baptists so forthright in our insistence on religious liberty? One reason is because we, we understand the sovereign grace of God. That people are saved because of God's grace and not because there's some kind of external or governmental force that is making them do it. You read the history of the early church, especially after Constantine became a Christian, and there were There were thousands and tens of thousands of converts. You see me making air quotes around converts. There were tens of thousands of converts who were given this evangelistic appeal. Say that you're a Christian or we'll kill you. And uh, that's a very effective way to get a lot of people to say, I'm a Christian. But it is not an effective way to get people to become true followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus understood that. Jesus never raised an army, and Jesus never tried to ordain a political system that all of this would be forced from the top down. And we need to remember in the United States, I hope hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ converts many people, and I hope that some of those people become police officers, and some of them become legislators, and some of them become senators and representatives. And when they are senators and representatives, they're going to be guided by some moral code in the decisions that they make. And I hope it's the Christian moral code. So I hope all of that. But you've got to say, 
we are not going to shove this down anybody's throat. Even if we gain the ascendancy in in a governing body and we have uh, the guns to do it, we are not going to go around saying, become a Christian or we're going to shoot you. That is not Jesus' way. And he deliberately tried to avoid the kind of popularity that had that mindset as its fundamental idea. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, the Bible says that there were many people who said, is not this the Christ? And Jesus could hear what was going on. And when it says in John chapter 6, when Jesus learned that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew again into the hills by himself. He could have, he could have had a good, a good start right there. 5,000 men, 5,000 men who were behind him saying, we want this guy to be the king. And Jesus recognized, I am to be their king, but not in the way that they suppose. And so he did not, he did not raise an army then. And then he quelled he quelled the kind of popularity that would result in a persistent misunderstanding of how the kingdom of God is advanced. <coughs> now, I find this very attractive about Jesus, <coughs> that through, through patiently serving his Father, that uh, he is going to bring about the changes that could not possibly be brought about through physical coercion. The Lord tells us to look at him. <clears throat> he says in this passage of Scripture, Behold my servant. So I, I mentioned in the introduction that the way that we come to appreciate Jesus more is that we learn about what he was like. We admire that. We appreciate that. And we become like that. Let's gaze at Jesus the servant. The Lord God said, Behold my servant. And recognize that our king is someone who came to be a servant. And let us imitate him in this. Let's consciously imitate him in this. May even today, when you feel like someone has uh, treated you as if you are their slave, to say, well, I want to go as far down that road as I can without doing harm to them or to someone else. I, I mentioned that qualification because you parents have a responsibility to make sure that your children do not boss you around. So you're not supposed to be a slave to your child. But in other ways, you are to serve them. And even in exercising your authority over those uh, who have been entrusted to your care, even in exercising that authority, you must do so with their good in mind like a servant would do. So the Lord says, Behold my servant. I have chosen him. <clears throat> this is the one that uh, I have chosen to, uh, to do what I want him to do. So we've seen a little bit about who Jesus was. We've seen that he was not a rabble rouser. He is a servant. He is chosen of the Lord. The Lord says, He is my beloved. Now let's spend a few minutes seeing what Jesus does. We've seen who Jesus was. And who he still is, but let's now see a little bit about what he does. So I read up through verse 19. <clears throat> let, me, let me start again with verse 19. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, this verse of Scripture is commonly used to refer to the gentleness of Christ in saying that when he sees the least hope of life in someone, even though it is as dubious as a bruised reed, he doesn't break the bruised reed. So, you know, a reed is, uh, you just think of like a... Uh, a uh, Cattail. <clears throat> so think of a cattail. That's a reed. So if you've ever messed with cattails, it's easy to easy to break them over and uh, easy to just <clears throat> rip the leaves apart. Uh, th- that's a reed. And so if if the cattail leaf is already broken down, then it's in bad shape. It'd be easy to rip it off the rest of the way. And here it says that a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking, wit, a smoking wick he will not quench. So uh, I don't think we have any, any of these candles that are lit. But you've had enough experience with candles that you know that when you blow them out, they smoke for a little while. That's because there's still a little bit of fire on that wick. And it's, uh, it's stinky. It's obnoxious. And uh, if you wanted to, you could take uh, your fingers and lick your finger and thumb and tss- you could uh, immediately extinguish that little spark that's on the on the wick, or you could take something like a snuffer and just snuff it out and plunge that wick down into the wax, and then you don't have uh, that smoldering wick. So the smoldering wick is something that only has a little bit of fire in it, and here it says he's not going to snuff that out. And the way that I have understood this my entire life <clears throat> is that this is speaking of the way that Jesus is gentle with weak believers. Well, you can tell that I don't think that's what it's saying anymore. I think that that's true of Jesus. I just don't think that's what it's saying here. I think in this particular context, what it's saying is that he is not going to raise a fight with the broken reed and the smoldering wicks that were the religious leaders of that time. And uh, so just so you don't think I'm completely wacky about that, I was introduced to that this past week when I was reading C.H. Spurgeon's commentary on this passage. And so I read some other commentaries as well. And Spurgeon and and, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, another commentator that I greatly respect, said, now this is commonly taken to refer to the gentleness of Jesus towards believers, but in the context, it's actually more about his not entering into fisticuffs with the, uh, with the religious leaders who were in opposition to him. But as I said, I think that uh, both things are true about Jesus in this particular context. I think it is just saying that Jesus is not a belligerent person. But read the rest of the passage. What does Jesus do? He does not break the reed. He does not snuff out the wick yet. I think he will. Look what it says in verse, uh, at the end of verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So in answering the question, what does Jesus do? 
one of the things that he does is that he brings justice to victory. Now, there's a whole lot of talk today about what justice is. And uh, most people have the wrong idea that justice means equal outcomes. In in, uh, civil justice, justice means equal opportunity. It does not mean everyone's going to end up the same, but equal opportunity. But uh, even God does not adhere to that definition of justice. He does not give everyone equal opportunity. Some of you in here are smarter than others in here. Some of you are better looking than others in here, and God did that. So everybody is not treated the same even at the beginning. Instead, a, a better definition of justice as it is in the Bible is that everyone receives his due, D-U-E. Everyone receives uh, what is right for that person to receive. Justice is, is the administration of fairness. And when it comes to being made right with God, we don't want fairness in that sense. But in the way that Jesus uh, is described here, I think that there is a way that we can say, I do want justice. Not because I deserve justice, but because Jesus has so accomplished the will of God that when God confers salvation on me or on anyone else, he does so along principles that are consistent with justice. Here's how it works. <clears throat> so, because, uh, because of human sin, humans are plagued with sinfulness, uh, a dislike for God, and all the ills of the world. So, sickness and natural disasters, all of that has come about as a result of human sin. And so one way that God could execute justice is to wipe out the entire human race. The Lord said, the wages of sin is death. If you sin against me, then you you die. And so that would be a manifestation of God's justice. But God is is a very gracious God. And he, in his grace, provided another way that justice could be executed and demonstrated without wiping out the entire human race. He devised that Jesus, his son, would come to earth and become a man so that as sin came into the world through a man, so also an atonement for sin could be made by a man. So this is why the work of redemption could not be done by an angel or some other heavenly being. It had to be done by a human. And so Jesus came. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He had, had, as far as I know, still has Mary's DNA code. His father was God, and so he never had a human father. That's the significance of the virgin birth. Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary supernaturally so that he never had any sin. That's very important. So he was born without a a tendency towards sin. He never had a sinful nature. And then as he he grew, he always avoided sin, and he always did what was right so that By the time he's 33 and a half years old, he's lived a life without ever sinning one time. And now, 
he can offer himself as a substitute for sinners. And then God punished Jesus. Why did God punish Jesus? He punished Jesus because Jesus had taken the sins of everyone who would eventually believe in him. He had taken those sins upon himself and essentially said, now punish me for these sins. And so God punished Jesus and so God's justice was satisfied. God's justice can't say, hey, wait a second, this is sneaking around the end. No, God's justice was satisfied because the sins that needed to be paid for were paid for in Jesus. So this is the greatest display of justice that the world has ever seen. And so I think that that is in mind when it says here that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles and he will bring justice to victory. What Jesus did on the cross was approved by God and it, the, the ultimate indication that God approved of it was that God raised Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus is still alive. He is still a man. He is the God-man. And he has been exalted to be a prince over this world. And the governance of this world has been entrusted to Jesus. And now people who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord receive the benefits of what he did on behalf of sinners. So you cannot, you cannot say Jesus died for my sins until you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And when you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you can say with, with confidence and assurance, then I know that Jesus died for me. This morning, I'm not asking you, will you believe that Jesus died for your sins? I'm asking you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, to take him as your boss, to take him as your husband boss, to take him as your father boss. And when you take him, then you may be assured that God's justice has been satisfied because it's been satisfied in your Savior whom you have received. Will he receive you? He will receive you. He will receive you. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Everybody in this room probably is a Gentile. If you're, if you're an ethnic Jew, I don't know about it, and I don't care. But almost everybody in here is a Gentile. Our ancestors worshipped rocks and the sun and the moon. But now... The message of God's justice through Jesus Christ has come to us, and we put our hope in Jesus. Now, this, is, uh, this may not seem like a very Christmassy message, but it is through and through from beginning to end a Christmassy message. This is why Jesus came. Not just so that we could say, oh, what a cute story. Look at, look at him lying there in the manger. Look at the, the wise men. But so that we might, so that we might receive him as the one who brought God's justice to victory. Uh, I know that Jim Bob has chosen a closing hymn, but instead of that, let's sing again, Elizabeth. If you can call up uh, our scripture song, I think we'll be able to sing it with a little more gusto. Let's stand while we sing, Behold My Servant. Behold my servant, my uphold, my chosen
upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully Bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In this scripture, the coastlands are just another way of describing the non-Jewish nations. So in in Matthew 12, it's described as the Gentiles. Uh, We're going to be dismissed in just a second, but let me remind you that we have an opportunity to uh, support uh, the Jewels in their efforts to raise finances for this very expensive adoption process. So they need need a lot of money. And uh, so let's pitch in. Let's be generous. Uh, So I am not going to stand at the door. I'm going to go out this way and encourage you also to recess to the the fellowship hall very quickly. There is a table that is next to the kitchen that has items that you may bid on. There's another table that is covered with uh, goodies, trays that are just donations. Uh, So some of them are really big trays and have a lot of goodies on there. Some of them are smaller. So the, uh, that table where we usually have our, our food is where the donations table is. That table where we usually have the desserts and drinks, that's the ones that are for auction. And so I encourage you to uh, go in there and be generous and uh, be, be a blessing. You are dismissed. <laughs>